welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. It's Jen from the Empathic Mastery Show. And today I have a really special guest who I brought on because when he and I connected for his show the other day, I had such a blast talking with him that I was like, I really got to bring you on mine. So my guest today is Flobo Boyce, and he is quite the Renaissance man. Not only is he a native New Yorker and a first-generation American with parents from Barbados, He's been in comedy for almost a decade, as well as a podcaster for New Amsterdam Radio, which is where I got to connect with Flobo. And he's also a contributor on the Black Baseball Mixtape, which is a show about people of color who are in the baseball industry and just the relationship to baseball. Once called a modern throwback, Flobo Boyce brings his high energy brand of comedy to the stage. Having been raised with live action variety programs such as The Tonight Show, The Flip Wilson Show, and Cedric the Entertainer Presents, Flobo's humor is cutting edge with a broad appeal. An accomplished former professional wrestling ring announcer, oh, that's something I didn't know about you, the Brooklyn native believes in having the utmost respect for the microphone. And certainly the microphone is something that you have all kinds of relationships with. Flovo, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Well, with that intro, I feel like I'm going to run through a wall. I'm like, yeah, let's go. Yay. Yay. Or maybe not a wall, but like one of those like rings with like the paper. And right, like you exactly. just go, yeah. Pyro's going <laughs> off. No, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And I know uh, it's going to be uh, a fun time and I'm looking forward to the discussion for sure. I am really looking forward to this. And, you know, when we were talking, we were obviously, I mean, my whole thing is empaths, you know, all empaths all day, every day. And so we were talking about for you what it was like. And I was like, I really love to talk about what it means to be a first generation American, what it's like to be in that melting pot between, you know, having parents from the old world or the old country and being in the new world and just all of that intersection, all of that interface and all of the subtlety that goes along with that. And so I know you and I talked about that, but before we dive into that, like, you know, how about you just tell us a little bit about like, maybe like, where did it all begin for you? Like, you know, what was it like for you? Were you, were you, did you, were you a sensitive kid? Were you a creative kid? Like, you know. oh, oh, absolutely. I cried all the time. I cried daily uh, in, in school and just for context. And even though we mentioned the 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 Brooklyn that, that my hometown is, but it was a different Brooklyn back then. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh, so, yeah, I was always a sensitive kid. I was also the, one of the biggest kids in class, too. So it was like a different lens. So there was like the stereotype you think I would have by being a bully. But I was always somebody who uh, wanted to make sure that his homework was neat. And I was on school on time. If it, everything melted down, it was a bad deal and so there was a bit of that too you know like you mentioned the parents from uh, a different kind of system my parents even though they are from the west indies they have a very uh british imperialistic look of education you know what i mean like we're we're 
teachers are more authoritarian. So it did feel like you went to school to work. You came home to work when it came to that sort of thing. And, and outlet was uh, being sensitive. And so you mentioned mix that with a hard nosed town uh, plus experiences. And you got me. Mm -mm. I just the word gentle giant comes to my mind for you as a as a little guy or something if you were like one of the big kids I was also just thinking about I've been listening to an audiobook is about a woman who whose parents came from Nigeria and went over and were in the UK and interestingly there was this phenomenon that was happening back in back in the, like I guess the 60s and 70s where a lot of these kids would go into foster care systems so the parents could go to school and everything like that. But she was just talking about like her experience, like being she because she was raised sort of in a more warm kind of like cozy English family. But then her own family were very, very serious and very, very, you know, just very. And, and so when she moved back with her mom, life was very different. And I was just thinking about like, you were just sort of saying like uh, school was, was, was work and home was work. So, you know, that cultural difference of, of the Imperial culture you were speaking about, like, what was it? Absolutely. One of the, the, I don't say the best things, that sounds terrible, but one of the more notable things about uh, the British empire, and we're talking about the different sides of, of the Atlantic, right? The diaspora is that there is a very common system about control and staying in line. And yeah. you sit near your, your desk with squares, you open your square books, you know what I mean? Right. Your square sheets yeah. of paper and religion as well. And so even though the West African uh, lifestyle is a little bit different, there is a lot of things that do cross over where it comes to uh, strict parents and acting a certain way and being modest and you can, it's okay to have dreams, but make sure you have a job first uh, and that sort of thing. So it's kind of similar, but different, but that says that about anyone, right? On this planet, we all have similar needs and wants, it's just different interpretations of that. Right, right. Well, and I'm just really struck as we're, as we're starting to have this conversation that it's like you, I mean, obviously coming from like, from the diaspora, from Africa to Barbados. And like, we're talking about multiple layers of being first generation in the sense that there is like a whole bunch of different times where your ancestors have adapted into different cultures multiple times. And, and here you are this melting pot person who landed in Brooklyn. But I also just want to say like where you were talking about, like, you know, you can have a dream, but you got to get a job first. Mm -hmm. Obviously comedy and being a wrestling announcer and yeah. being on and podcaster is not exactly the kind of stuff that most people think of when they think get a job. So it strikes me that you're a bit of an outlier and that probably even though you wanted to have your homework really neat, how did you break away from being the perfect, perfect student who was having a meltdown if your papers were awry? <laughs> uh, Jennifer, no, I haven't. I'm still freaking out, man. Uh, just for context, I was a B plus student. I tried really hard to be A, didn't have a, a, a personal life. Like I, like I was an A student, uh, but somehow did slightly better. And I and I knew that. And there was, a, there was a part of time, don't tell kids now where grades don't really matter, right? If you finish last in your class, you still get the degree. But to, right. to answer your question, um, I understand the importance. My grandparents, that's a few generations ago, 
Mexico, they worked in out in the plantations. They they cut sugarcane. They were butchers, fishermen, that sort of thing. And my parents, when they came to this country, worked uh, the very much the immigrant path. My dad was an electrical engineer. He worked for New York City Transit Authority in the subway division or rapid transit, what they call it. And my mom was an OBGYN nurse for like 35 years at Brooklyn Hospital before she retired due to a meniscus injury. So they had mm. jobs that were very different than their parents, but they were mm-hmm. definitely uh, more prof- like professions in the traditional sense. And so growing up, I was always uh, someone that liked to be creative. I uh, couldn't draw to save my life. I, I And I would say if I had encouraging teachers, I probably would have, but I just had the bad luck of the draw when it came to that sort of thing. But watching TV, I wanted to be an actor when I was a kid. Um, and uh, when I was a teenager and I thought, being a finance major was my dream. I had a job at Citibank where they put me in the media department and I saw what now they call industrials, what the editors are doing for corporate commercials and, and quarterly reports. They had like little graphics and stuff. It didn't have mm-hmm. to lose used in ties, but they made a living and they get to drink beer at lunch. And I was like, I want that. Well, beer was bad, terrible back then, but I was like, I want that lifestyle. And so I just kind of like leaned into that as soon as I went. So I had a TV degree undergrad, a film degree in grad. Uh, I was looking for work as an editor. And I said, hey, look, I instead of editing stories, let me write my own. Became an author that way, but I became a copywriter that way when I got picked up by Fox and this one thing led to another. So even though I say comedy first and I started doing comedy in 2014, it really was like, hey, I had this creative expression. And whereas in most places you try to suppress that because you had to provide, I unfortunately went to school for so long that I had opportunities to work on that. And I realized that was the path for me. Two things. One is I'm really struck by the fact that so my grandparents on my mother's side were fishermen and my mother is a nurse. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I just yeah. And and it is it's sort of and my and my mom was a first generation American. And it's just kind of interesting that kind of way in which like the 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 kind of shift, but also that the value of the work ethic. I'm hearing this and I'm thinking it's almost like your creative process kind of found its way to you, despite the fact that you had this very solid, like American dream work ethic. And this idea of like, you know, like you said, you were going to be a finance manager, you were like, that was you were going to be the next Alex P. Keaton. (laughs) Deep cut. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. Uh, I do think that I know they they say that I didn't choose a thug life. A thug life chose me. Um, mm-hmm. And it's very easy. The older we get to say, I would love to do X, but why? Right. I would love to open up a bake a bakery, but I got the kids or I would right. love to go travel the world. But uh, my my dad is sick. And I understand that. And I don't want to yeah. think I don't want to be those guys who are on podcasts like, no, just get up at four o'clock in the morning and achieve your dreams. It's easy. No, there's there's times you just can't do that. It's <laughs> Let's be real. But like at the same time. I've worked for delivering groceries. I've had two college degrees and sold hand sanitizer at like at, at door to door. Mm-hmm. I worked at Target at three o'clock in the morning unloading a truck. Like the mm. bills have to get paid because they don't really care about your dreams. But if it's your downtime and you're still thinking about that bakery, even though you are dead tired, that is a sign that you should probably at least try it or find a way to at least make that work with the schedule you have. It may not be a whole lot. It may be 20 minutes a day. In fact, when I was on my weight loss journey, uh, just for context, uh, I used to weigh 375 pounds. I lost 175 of those. Uh, I always said hardened criminals get an hour to exercise a week, a day, excuse me. 
No matter how bad you are, you still get that hour. Why not you? You're a good person. Go out there, go uh-huh. for a walk. That sort of thing. You may not love it. I don't love brushing my teeth, but it has to be done, right? I don't mind brushing my teeth, but I gotta say, I've been ha- I have had to work so freaking hard on developing a flossing habit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's see, where, that's where I fall apart is in the flossing. <laughs> Although, go me, I have flossed ever since. I have flossed pretty much every single day since I last saw my dentist, and I see my dentist tomorrow, and or my hygienist, and hopefully she's gonna be like, "Oh my god, Jennifer, I'm so proud of you." Let's go, Jennifer. Made it to sixty, and I'm finally flossing my teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's the pain. Now the little placard things are great. They're totally great. Yeah, I actually I have such crowded teeth. I can't. My husband uses the placards. I can't use the placards. They get stuck in my teeth, so I end up with these little weird plastic things. (laughs) I got tight teeth in places too. It's a pain in the butt. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I think it's the Scottish ancestry that we were talking about. There is definitely a particular look. Do you have the bottom? Do you have the snaggle tooth bottom row where it's I, like I the had it for a while? Yeah, yeah, I had it for a while. I had to go get the the brace face and the headgear when I was uh, when I was younger, but it was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I look at my father's teeth, and I have the exact same bottom teeth as my dad. And I swear to God, it's a totally a Scottish thing. But anyway. <laughs> You know, what an interesting, so I just want to pull out a little tidbit that you just threw out there, which is that you are down 175 pounds Mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, talk about a substantial shift in your, in your life and your body, but also anybody who's dealt with that level of weight loss knows that it's not just about the food and it's not just about the weight. So, um, how long have you, like, when did that change happen? How long have you sustained this weight loss? You'll notice, I'm not sure if we recorded this part, but I, you asked me what day I started comedy and I actually had the date in my head. Uh, and I actually had the date for this too. Uh, it, it's, uh, so I was, I was heavy my entire life. I mean, I was, I was 80 pounds when I was in first grade, uh, when I got to college and we had the full meal plan three buffets a day, it was 375. But when I moved out to California and in some ways, California did save my life because it's so image conscious, especially in Southern California. You know, and mm-hmm. there's a lot more restaurants with different cuisines because in New York, yes. there's kind of like now there's vegetarian. But even as a kid, it wasn't a thing. You know, I, I started going to the gym on February 26, 2009. And I used to go at like midnight because I had failed at the gym so many times that if I failed this time, I don't want my roommates to know that I tried and failed again. Um, and I just kept going. And I said, oh, look, I'm going to do 30 minutes a day. The idea was just getting yourself to the gym. If you did that and did a light day, fine, but a light day but in the no day. It took me about yeah. four years to lose that weight. Didn't know much about nutrition. I, I literally was on the Subway sandwich diet uh, for the first mm-hmm. two years of that. Not the most cost effective, especially now. But back then there were $5 foot long. So it was all, right, it was right, all good right. uh, just to be able to do that and, and keeping it off. And, and people always say, how do you keep it off? And I'll go, well, on one hand, the first part of that journey was just taking it day by day. And that's, that, that's table stakes. But when I had lost the weight, I had so much uh, excess skin in front of my ab cavity, uh, I had to get the surgery to remove it. I couldn't function with it. And it mm-hmm. was like a couple thousand dollars, didn't have all of it. And so some of it was crowdfunded from my friends. And so mm-hmm. they chipped in, I think about less than half of that, maybe like 3,500 of an $8,000 bill or whatever uh, mm-hmm. to get that done. But when I go out there and I have a binge week and I look in the mirror, I go, well, 
not saying don't let them down, but people did invest in you and they thought you were on this path, you know, maybe use that as a ruler a bit. So I literally have a scar from my chest down to my pelvic line and my hips, like an inverted T uh, of the, the time they pulled in six or seven pounds of my skin. So I always wow. do that to hold myself accountable. Uh, and I always try to eat right. This weekend was off. It was Easter weekend. Like, yeah, all right. Woo. You know, I ate for Jesus. But after that, I'm going to have to go to start back on the path to, to make sure that I'm within a healthy weight range. Well, and I think that that's one of the things that's just so important about a lifestyle of eating in a different way is that it's not about, it's not about like being perfect every single day. Like there are holidays, there are moments where, you know, it's like, it's Easter weekend, I'm going to eat this thing, but it is also about that self-love that brings us back to, it brings us back to the, you know, like, I don't know, like like finding the equilibrium and staying in that alignment so that we just don't, you know, go off the deep end. But I also really hear like for you, that piece of, you know, the fact that you're accountable to these people who cared enough and believed in you enough to invest in your, in your transformation, you know, that's huge. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, these friends who believe in me kicks a can down the road. Uh, I was actually afraid to ask for help. Maybe this is something that maybe be beneficial for your listeners. So I had yeah. a, a partner at the time that actually made, no, now it's called GoFundMe, but back then it was called uh, You Caring uh, to, to, to do mm-hmm. this. To the but I didn't, I felt it was kind of embarrassed. I felt like, you know, it, it isn't like having a physical or mental disability, being overweight is something that society kind of just puts it on you, right? Put the fork right. down or, or what have you. But so when you did the work, but you're now functionally can't work out because I was essentially pregnant for 16 years and my skin had no elasticity. I felt that was kind of right. embarrassed to ask, but thankfully I had someone ask on my behalf. And then when everyone came out, it didn't make you realize, Hey, look, you know, there are people out there who care. And I'm not saying that to be all dark and doomy and gloomy, but sometimes when the rent's due and the kids are crying and they don't like what you made for dinner and your partner is on a business trip. You're like, does anyone care about me? People do. Uh, the people do people just do. make sure that uh, you don't forget that part. Yeah, I think that's such an incredibly important part. You know, you also are talking about like the way, I mean, I just finished listening to a book that like, mind blown, Um, Aubrey Gordon, who has a podcast that is called The Maintenance. Oh God, some maintenance something, sorry. Um, But she wrote a book called, um, You Just Need to Lose, You Just Need to Lose Weight. And like, it was so amazing listening to this book and about the ways that there is so much victim blaming, that there is so much, and there is so much, like just so much it being all placed on you mm-hmm. that I can only imagine like what it must have been like to be sort of living with, you've lost the weight, but but you're still dealing with all of this stretched skin, like just asking for that help in a culture that is so demonizes people with weight. I, it, it makes complete sense to me that you would have really been resistant or or reticent to ask for any kind of help or support. So there's a lot of layers there. I mean, there there's yeah. definitely the asking for help. There's definitely the us being American, right? We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and asking right. for help is, I won't say weakness because that's something people say a lot, but I mean, it's literally been demonstrated that you don't deserve it if you ask for help, right? Like, oh, look, right. there's programs for certain undeserved communities, but if you take those programs, you're just taking the job of somebody else. And so 
I mean, there's there's situations there where you where you it becomes too much. Where you're like, oh, I have to do it my own. I have to play on hard mode. Got to prove to everyone else. But then you look around, you go, well, everyone's getting help and assistance if they ask for it. Why not me? Um, but even that, then knowing that, it still could be a struggle sometimes. Well, and you know, we're talking. It's interesting thinking about like the so so. First off, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. I heard this really interesting thing recently that was like, apparently. The original idea of pull yourself up by the bootstraps, and this might be completely apocryphal, but this was what I heard. It was actually like a European um, send off or or pair like like criticism of American behavior, where it was a picture of somebody like Americans pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. But the thing is, it was a joke because the truth is, if you're standing in your freaking boots, you cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps because the weight of your own body is going to prevent you from being able to like you can't. It's a literal impossibility. And so, what's really funny is that apparently this was sort of a, a joke talking about Americans kind of like their whole, like we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps when that's just an actual, actual impossibility. But Americans heard it and we're like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> yeah. But it's absurd. None of us can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. And, and, and it was sort of like, but the American idea of like, you're responsible for, you got to do it yourself. Yeah. But I won. I really wonder too, because I, I think about family members because like you, I have, well, and it's interesting. I definitely have like first generation, my mom's a first generation American. My mother-in-law, I think is either first or second generation American. And so it's interesting kind of looking at the ways in which like the 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 idea of coming into America and you're supposed to be so self-sufficient that there's a lot of pressure to not receive help or to not accept support. And I wonder if I'm wondering if you notice if there's any kind of connection between like what it means to come to America and not accept a handout, basically. Yeah. Well, for those that Does come that to this sense? country, the, the generation before, there's usually someone behind that that's in the worst situation. So my parents had their own parents and the idea was you work, you save money. So they, whether they want to or not, were kind of in this, like this burn your ships mentality where it's like, well, I can't go back because there's a family that, that believes in me. And in some ways, to make it anecdotal, I feel that same way too. My entire family mm -hmm. still lives in Brooklyn. Uh, the same time, my, my brother has a girlfriend in New York, but in Queens, but whatever. Uh, but I, they still live in Brooklyn. Uh, and, and I live in California doing entertainment when yeah. my ad dollars dip because no one downloads a podcast i can't call my mom or dad because they don't understand that job didn't exist 15 or 20 years ago but i do feel like and it's kind of lockstep and dovetail that there is this like push to play things on hard mode so you can climb the top of that mountain and then look down at everyone else i made it here because i work hard you are not here therefore you don't and that's where civility goes out the window because when someone needs your help you can say well i did it why not you and walk away Way, feeling totally fine about yourself, not helping your fellow man. What is the point of being a citizen, right? So I do think there's a lot of that stuff interplay there. That that thrill of saying I'm a I'm self-made or I do it by hard work, and that is kind of mixed with the don't ask for help because you could do it yourself. Ah, uh, preach. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and I think I mean this sort of leads us into kind of the whole, and you've kind of hinted at it. You were talking about like the bro culture and like you know the crush it culture and the you know dress girl up at four o'clock in the morning and you know <laughs> like and what I love I love the fact that you're acknowledging hustle culture, but you're also acknowledging like humanity and 
mercy and compassion and kindness. Like, why are we doing it this way? Yeah, I don't know. If you can figure that out, please let me know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I definitely spend a lot of time going. WTF? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, how did we get here? So how many Instagram reels. It's just like, oh man, what you need to do is just like you know, sleep twenty minutes and do a thousand push-ups, and your life's better, bro. Right. Well, and I'm. I don't. I don't know if this is your experience or if this has been the case for you. But I think sometimes when you are a person who's had a body that is not compliant, that does not go along with the program, like the way it does for the way other people's bodies do, that there is a way in which hopefully we can develop a level of compassion for people whose bodies or whose circumstances really are challenging. Like not everybody can get up at four o'clock in the morning. I certainly, I can stay up till four o'clock in the morning, but getting up at four (laughs) o'clock in the morning is not, it's not really, um, has never been a strong suit of mine, but also just like the idea that like some people, like you can sleep deprive and sleep deprive and sleep deprive, and it's not going to have any price. It's not going to have any consequence. Right. Yeah. I mean, I understand how cool it is to to do that and like and tell your friends about that. But I'm really curious of how people actually do that and function. I've been trying to set my alarm to 5:30 a.m. for like six months. <laughs> Every day, I'm like, what am I doing to myself? I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. I swear. Uh, but that yeah. said, when I'm awake and alert, there's okay to be productive for me. I'm I'm most productive in two spurts, from 9 a.m. to 11, and then like from four to six. I'm just like a machine there. That's just the way it is. I have my super long lunch breaks or what have you. But if you're a night owl and you can do your stuff or things are open, then why not? Man, there really isn't a path to the right way of doing that. And I think a lot of this stuff, a lot of the success or building your own empire, once you break yourself away from what's what should be done or what people tell you should be done. And I know that's also like a very Instagrammable thing to say, don't care what people think. No, sometimes you need new people to think because you don't want to go too crazy. If I want to wear polka dots and stripes, I need someone to tell me, hey, look, it's loud. Try something else. But at the same time, you want to be able to experiment with the time that you have because you put yourself yeah. in that format and go, I work from this to this. I put the kids to bed from this to this. I only get an hour to do this. Then you're only going to give yourself that hour. And that's how dreams fade away. Mm-hmm. It is how dreams fade away. And the other thing, um, I just was reading something earlier today or sometime within the last 24 hours or so, where somebody was talking about, she was talking about how she lived in this really cramped apartment mm-hmm. and um, she had a yoga mat, but in order to do yoga, she was going to have to move the couch. She's going to have to move all the furniture around, like everything was going to have to be done. So she was kind of like saying to herself, when I have a bigger place to live, then I'll do yoga. And so eventually they moved into this gorgeous dream house because her income and her her career shifted. She did a lot of like she really was able to like up level her whole life, but she's still not doing yoga. Right. And, you know, and she was talking about like, you know, sometimes it's like there are the things that we say we want to do and we have these someday when. But that even once those other circumstances change, we're still not doing the thing. Right. And then there, you know, and so sometimes it is also like, do we really, really, really want this? Is this really where our heart wants to go? Because, I mean, I think there's a big difference between the shoulds Mm -hmm. and the true and doing what is truly, truly aligned for us and truly good. I love how you were speaking a little bit before about, you know, your time. And I call that heat mapping in my day of just knowing what I'm good at 
and when I'm good at it and not trying to like one of the reasons why I rarely schedule anything before noon is I am just like, I am a, my voice is froggy for one thing, but I'm also just a zombie in the mornings. Like I'm just kind of like, what is going on? (laughs) And I've found that, you know, like I have a rhythm where I recognize when my creative flow is best, when my talking flow is best, when my, my work with other people is best. And it sounds like you also understand that, like you've got these windows of time where you're just on fire. And then there's times where you need to be like chilling out. Trial and error. I mean, the, the whole pandemic thing kind of like broke time for a while. And I was like it getting did. up at 10 a.m. and going to bed at 12.30. But uh, but yeah, with repetition and I'm self-employed, uh, thankfully, I got kicked out of my last corporate job. <laughs> and so I was I was self-employed, not by choice, um, but but there's some of the cool advantages to that. You know, yeah, granted, you don't get PTO because you're work for yourself, but you could do things like take a two-hour lunch if you're not feeling it or sleep in or get up early or split work if you're on the road, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, obviously as another self-employed person, I am a very big fan of the, I'm a very big fan of the autonomy and the fact that, that we do have a certain freedom of choice about things. I mean, the joke is what is it like, you know, self-employment, the, uh, you know, 80 hour work week so that you don't have to work 40 hours for another person, (laughs) you know? Yeah. (laughs) Or or our bosses are always jerks. That's my favorite self-employed joke. (laughs) Yes. yes. And our bosses are often extremely critical and very hard on our, (laughs) and very, very hard on us. So going back to, you were talking about how with your, with your parents, like, you know, you can't just call your mom and be like, oh, my revenue is down because she just won't get it. Right. How was it moving from, I mean, electrical engineer and nurse, Mm -hmm. you know, very like conventional, good, solid, steady job. How was it for them seeing you like what was it like for them to see you decide to move to the West Coast? What was it like for them to have you go into entertainment? Were they just did they support you? Were they just like, I don't know what you're doing? Yeah. What happened? Well, to answer the first question, second, first, first things first, it is an ongoing evolving dialogue to my parents when i decided to go to film school that was the first jump because i i lived in brooklyn for the first 18 years and i moved to florida for undergrad and i was going to grad school in orange county at a school called chapman university here uh, in the city of orange uh, which is next to anaheim mm-hmm. that to me was the the lightning rod moment because my mom did not know what that all meant but she goes, if that makes you happy, then go forward. When she was a young lady on, on the island, there was very few opportunities for women, right? They were expected to be a school teacher or a bank teller or a nurse. Uh, and my mom chose nursing because that would got her a path to live in Scotland, to leave the island to better new experiences. So for her, this was just me going to my own Scotland. And she's like, I don't know what you're doing, but go ahead. My dad literally looked at me in the face and said, are you nuts? And 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 mm-hmm. of course, there were some months of tension there. And well, I would call home and say directly what's going on. Hey, look, uh, my pitch for a short film got denied. Or hey, look, I worked for Fox Broadcasting for two years. They told me goodbye. And it really was like trying to, to talk to a wall, right? No one really understood. But I also understood that over time, as my parents get older and I'm getting uh, more into the, the weeds of what I'm doing, I'm getting better at communicating 
the the losses or the challenges. Hey, look, you may not understand about uh, a podcast guest that begged you for this particular time slot at five o'clock in the morning and then blows off your show, but you can understand about being in a doctor's office for six hours waiting for a doctor. And they say, we can't do it or come on today. Uh, we talked about uh, a little bit before we went live as, uh, you know, I am a baseball fan, I'm a baseball chaser. I got that from my dad and I'm leaning into it more as he got older because we actually talked to him that on a pure surface non-shop level my parents are very devout i am actually going in reverse i'm actually doing more um traditions like lent season for example this year so we have something to communicate with just trying to figure out that common ground because it's very easy to be like mom and dad don't get it whatever but they are getting older and the only parents i have the only set i get so uh, so i wouldn't be able to at least uh, reach out to them on some levels and it does change over time well, and in a way, this kind of what I'm hearing you say is that as you're getting older, you are looking for ways to find the common language and that you are looking for ways to make that connection. And that actually kind of leads to something we were talking about off mic, um, you know, or, off, you know, before we started the recording about dialect barriers, you know, the idea that we can have the same, we can be speaking, quote, the same language, but the dialect, like the, the, you know, that there's sort of like commonalities may not be there. And what I'm really hearing and what you're saying is like that there is a part of you that is definitely looking to find the common language, the common dialect, as opposed to looking at the differences. Yeah, you know, this is, I had a, my whole parents to understand phase. And, and if you're, anyone's listening now, I don't have kids of my own, but if you had kids, uh, there's always going to be a rebellious period where they either fall to the wrong crowd or or my thing was tattoos. My parents are very strict that way. I was like, I'm getting all tattoos, y'all. Hey, um, uh, but that, that's kind of kind of fine too. Uh, but even though I understand uh, what my, my paths are or my world or what's going on here in California, we're not totally translate. I do think it's always important for me as a communicator, sure, but definitely that as someone, as someone's child, that I am okay, right? I think it's more now, more than ever, the mission is to show them that, yeah, bills are going to be there, or yeah, I don't understand why this costs us much, but as they hit 75 or 80, that their child is okay and not like how I was at 20 years old going, why did I decide to go to school after going to school after going to school uh, sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. I got to say, you mentioned that you rocked for Fox Broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, what obviously Fox News and Fox has quite the reputation in this in oh. the United States. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was like being, you know, being a person of color and being a New Yorker and sure. like and being a first generation American and like what was it? Working so for I, Fox News. I got I got to put some Fox context News. in here. I got to put some context because it does. Now that you mentioned, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> even though Fox News like, is based you in New York, for Fox. Yeah, yeah. Even though Fox News is based in in New York at the time before the Disney merger, the Fox Studio was out here in Los Angeles. So my checks yeah. literally said Fox Broadcasting, but the show I worked on was American Idol. So I, I worked at American Idol in the post department on the entertainment side, not the news, not the news side. Okay, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> that's one thing I've always noticed is really weird about Fox is that like you get this the super uber conservative news, mm-hmm. but their entertainment side is actually fairly liberal, and like some of the TV programs they do are cutting edge. 
And, you know, which has always been fascinating to me. It's almost like the right hand, like it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in yeah. that, in, you know, in the broadcast, in, in the. If you want me to be that. cynical, uh, Fox News Please. as a news channel was was created with that mind. Like the CNN was popular as a brand, but the idea was to come up with an alternative voice. So it will always lean into that stuff because that's what it was. Designed. It was like it was a naturally occurring thing. And I think that mm. once other more conservative channels came up, like Newsmax and OAN, if you're familiar with that, Fox had a really crisis of culture because they were the, the most right programming on the news dial, but they have their own sponsors they had to reconcile with. So it's always, if you're a kind of person like news and media junkie, it is kind of cool to see that kind of like evolution of Fox to be more right of center, just to maintain that revenue stream. But Fox News was mm -hmm. always made to be like Fox's uh, reality shows to be um, thought provoking, provocative. It just happened to be on mm -hmm. the conservative side. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, sadly, it is all about like how incendiary can you be to get viewers and to keep your rating up and to engage people. So anyway, you were working for American Idol and in post-production as yeah. opposed to. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what an amazing journey you've been on and what an incredible life. It's just Sometimes it feels great. Sometimes you kind of forget. So thank you so yeah. much for telling me that. <laughs> yeah. So um, in terms of filmmaking, I know, you know, you studied filmmaking. Is that something you sort of, do you have sort of a vision of like, is there like the great masterpiece that you imagine someday you're going to do? Like, are you, are you still holding on to that image of a film? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because like the the main goal hadn't changed. And and growing up, I grew up on late night talk shows. Uh, I was mm -hmm. a Tonight Show fan. And for me, the Tonight Show will always be with Jay Leno. It's an age thing, right? Because I've watched Carson, I watched Fallon and they're Carson and Fallon. But the Tonight Show was like the uh, Kevin Eubanks band and all that. That was something I always wanted to do. And and I, I like the fact that I, I had the moment there, a therapy type moment where I said, like, why do I love this genre so much? It's because it's it was... High, high number of episodes. It was kind of live every night. My parents, who didn't really like laugh a lot, laughed when Jay Leno did headlines. They made the pass that joy down to, to do it. And so everything's kind of led to that. Uh, what I work now as an esports uh, commentator or a podcaster or a broadcaster, to me, is a hosting and interviewing part of that. The comedy mm -hmm. side is like the opening monologue. The DJ side as a wedding DJ is the musical stuff. And I still think that's the main goal. But I will say, and I think this is very important is that you can have an endpoint, but the cool thing about life is that you have to enjoy the detours, right? Life is never in a straight line. It's never on an incline. So if you don't get that promotion, it's not the end of the world. I thought it's going to be easy as, oh yeah, I'm film school, going to make these films and then I'll be film, 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 film. And I got it. Film school, couldn't work for two and a half years, couldn't find a job. Then I got the job at American Idol where I was in post-production. And then only because my, my boss at the time saw that I wrote short stories on Amazon. He said, hey, do you want to write some of a copy for the show? And that became my writing path. And so it's kind of trippy that I could eventually hit that goal anyway with the late night variety show or late night talk show that I would host, but never in the way I would have expected. Right, right. Well, and I love how you're talking about the way that sort of like we get these breadcrumbs kind of dropped in our path and there's these like glistening jewels in our life that we're like, this is something I really love. But 
uh, so frequently the way we think we're going to get to it is not ultimately or the is not the way that it actually happens. Mm-hmm. And and yet, you, you know, and then yet looking back at the sort of the whole trajectory, you're like, oh, I can see how this, this and this all fit together to ultimately create this. Yeah, so much fun. Yeah. It's a, it's a, so there's some dark nights. Uh, you're like, oh man, what well, I should have opened that deli in Queens and uh, <laughs> call it a day. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, if it's something that chooses you, then it should be uh, a fun. I call it being the good tired. If you're exhausted, but in a good way, uh, then you know you're on to something. Absolutely. Well, and I think even if, you know, you open that deli in Queens, I can guarantee you there would be the time where the health inspector came in and is just like giving you a list as long as your arm of the stuff <laughs> you're going to have to adjust to right. where you're like, God, I wish I went into filmmaking in Los Angeles <laughs> instead, because that would have been so much easier. I will say I've, I've, um, I'm there, but for the grace of God in terms of filmmaking, because that was one of my, that was my, as an undergraduate, I was doing film and photography. It was my undergraduate degree, but I just didn't have the self-esteem or the confidence to like hustle to get out to Los Angeles or to do any of that stuff. And so it was kind of like, it just sort of wasn't quite my path, but I definitely known filmmakers. And I just have to say that it seems like, you know, and, and just in general, it's like you get out of art school, you get out of film school, you get out of these places and you think, I have arrived and you get out there and it's like, they're just like, yeah, Hey, little peon, we don't have for you. That it is kind of a rude awakening when you get out of art school, you know, getting out of these places and thinking like that there's going to be opportunity and you still have to absolutely create it for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought the the plan was if I go to school over there with two or three years, I'm there. I'll network. And when I'm out, I'll be the hottest property. It didn't happen. Did not happen at all. <laughs> nope. Mm. It's just such a, it seems like it's just a slow ascent, you know, and every so often you hear these, these sort of like crazy, crazy viral stories of somebody who just happened to be in the right place at the right time. But I think for most people, it is not like an overnight sensation. I mean, what is it they say? It's like overnight sensation in 10 years. Like, you know, we don't know what it takes to get where, like so often we think we know what it took for somebody to become who they are. And with the hustle culture also, people don't talk about all of the near misses. They don't talk about all of the launches that don't happen the way they want them to. They don't talk about the, you know, the experiment that went totally sideways. They talk about like, oh, yeah, I crushed this. But they don't talk about the five things that had to happen before that, right. that they needed where they they course corrected a lot. And they had, you know, and they had to divest or be like, Oh, I put a lot into that, but that is not working. Yeah, I have so many failures on this end. Uh, it's uh, my own production company. New Amsterdam used to be a stationary company, uh, and I still had the stock. So I had hundreds of notebooks and newspapers when that company went belly up. But uh, I use that brand still for my podcast as, as a sign. So I get you. Yeah, I, there's this one of the one of the uh, one of the mentors that I have been working with for many many years refers to refers to something as procrastinating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like you get this idea of your brand and everything, and you start making all this swag and everything that you know, and then it's like you got a case full of notebooks, you got a case full of uh, of (laughs) all these different things because it's like, oh, I guess people aren't necessarily as interested in purchasing this stuff. Well, and then also we've got this whole culture that's like, I don't know if you um, 
if you're familiar with the whole sort of like low content publishing that's become really popular now. No. Um, oh, yeah. So within within the publishing sort of self-publishing world, there's this whole medium content and low content where there are these people who are just like, just make notebooks for Amazon and you'll make a you'll make bank. Oh, yeah. And it's yeah. just kind of like, yeah, no doesn't work that way peeps just right, does not right. work that way i can tell you that for sure <laughs> yeah oh goodness we have been i mean this has just been such a rich conversation i and just so many pieces to your story like being such a sensitive kid i actually would love to go back to like it sounds like as a young kid you were saying you would cry at the drop of a hat you were you were just really, really, you were really sensitive. You were really disciplined. You were really hardworking, even if you didn't necessarily get the straight A's. But you certainly, it sounds like you were very earnest and you put in a lot of effort. You seem like somebody who is incredibly self-confident now, somebody who is very personable, very articulate, very comfortable in your own skin, what was that journey like? Was there like how did you go from being the the gentle giant who was crying all the time yeah. to being the flobo voice that I'm talking to now? Well, like, was I, there a pivot? Was there a moment? Like it's a good question because I feel like understanding uh, self doubt or, or lack of confidence better. Like so, before I thought that was my personality, my identity. I'm just a, a guy who's nervous and shy. And I still am, but I also feel like that it's kind of like, I always say self-doubt is your own BO, right? It's your own body odor. Uh, you can take a shower to keep it at bay, but it never goes away a hundred percent. And you have to keep that in check. Uh, unfortunately, the, it, it a lot of it does come with the weight loss. And I say, unfortunately, because the world does treat you differently when you yes. are a plus sized, uh, think clothes cost more, uh, people are less, um, less care or giving when they are on a plane, for example. And uh, uh, it, it's pretty bad. It, it really is. And and so even though I was as, as large as a 6X, they're large. I think the hardest mm -hmm. size to shop for is 3X because sometimes people make things are good quality and then they don't. And you spend so much money on failed dreams experiments. And But when you start losing the weight, people do treat you better. And, and people do treat you better and you're in more loving environments. So even though the love here could be disingenuine. But just in general, mm -hmm. if you're in places where they're happy to see you or they want your opinion or they ask about your perspective on things, that's something that can really help you out in a personal situation. So I always tell people if you're in a relationship or if you're in a family, you don't feel at least sometimes getting empowered that way, then it's best to move on. And it really becomes a nugget or into a mile, a nugget to a whole thing. And when people say, hey, look, you do sound smart, write this book, or what's your opinion about this process or this political policy or whatever, that does happen a bit over time. So my journey is a little bit specific. Unfortunately, it really, people came to you because I was uh, normal size, which is pretty tragic to say, but I do acknowledge it's a different person I am now today than I was back then. Yeah. You know, going back to talking about Aubrey Gordon's book, You Just Need to Lose Weight. I mean, some of the discrimination against fat people is just incredible. Like even in terms of the medical industry, like there are so many people who end up getting dying of cancer because they go to see a doctor and the doctor is just like, you're fat, you need to lose weight. And they don't even do diagnostic things because they are just 
all they can see is the body in front of them and they don't necessarily see the human being and the complexity of that. And so there is a way in which when you're a really large person, it is sadly yours. I mean, everything you're saying, it just from everything I know is so true that it really is like almost like a completely different world. And ironically, I think that you have, we have such an obsession in our culture with weight that you have all of these people who are actually not excessively overweight, who might be 20, 30, 40, maybe even 50 pounds overweight, who think of themselves as fat, but are still experiencing all of the privilege of an average body. They can buy clothing off the rack. They can sit in an airplane seat without having a seat extender or having to buy a second seat. Um, they doctor and the doctor's first thing isn't, um, well, before I can even treat you, you need to lose weight. And um, and yet our culture is so focused on it that I think there are a lot of people who think that their experience is of a fat person and they've never experienced the discrimination that comes with being a really large person. Yeah, absolutely. So you've lived both worlds. You've experienced both what it's like to be treated that way. Actually, I've got an, a question and you can say, you know, not like, like, please decline if this doesn't feel comfortable, but <laughs> having experienced the prejudice of being a very large overweight man and also being a person of color, I don't know, like, is there an intersection between those two things? Is yeah, absolutely. So if you want to do a Venn diagram of, of all the things that are said negatively about fat people and all the things that are said negatively about black people, uh, the one in the middle is lazy. Uh, and so if you notice of everything I did in my life, I make sure that I'm not the most laziest person there. And it's weird because lazy is such a nebulous term that it's relative also. You can put yourself into a very unhealthy situation of hustling all the time. But yes. that's the reason why I was there early. That's why I left late. That's why B plus is word enough is because that's the one insult that cut across both of those, uh, those sides of that Venn diagram. I'm just sitting with like the, I'm just sitting with the magnitude of that. Like the word lazy is just reverberating in my heart because I don't, are you familiar with the nap ministry? No. Check it out. Okay. <laughs> the tagline of the nap ministry is rest is resistance, you know, and it's, it's all about, especially women of color claiming rest that it is one of the most radical, radical things that people can do. I mean, our culture it's almost like lazy is used as this carrot or this like whip that we abuse people with. And I can't even imagine if you're in that Venn diagram where it's like you've got that, mono, you know, it's like sort of it's the label that's being thrown at you in so many ways. But also, as you're saying, how is it almost like reflexively you're living your life in response to not being lazy? Right. Or not being perceived as lazy. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I guess you could say it's all part of the same mosaic of the, the hustle culture and all that stuff. And I learned about 10 years ago that I'm tired of hustling. I, I want to yeah. make progress, but the, the growing up, it was always that because yeah, if someone sees you run, you're not going to be faster than someone half your size. That's just a scientific thing. I mean, you can be, uh, most times you won't be. So that's considered lazy. Or if you are a certain way, if, you, if it's hot outside and you're sweating because you have more mass, people think you don't move at all. And so anyway, uh, to make that a whole big thing. But I do think that's the, the big one. Uh, and that's the one I always approach to. And people always say, hey, man, Flo, you're hustling all the time. And I go, well, I put myself in a position now where this is my normal pace. 
Now I'm not mm-hmm. saying that beating my chest, like get to my level suckers. No, I'm just, but I'm just saying that I've so many years of being told that what I was doing was enough that when I'm doing something at a faster pace, I can't, I'm, I'm left to my own devices. I don't know what to do with myself on a day off. It's like, Oh, I got to do something. You know, I got to contribute somehow. I think also that for, I mean, it's funny because, well, I'm married to a drummer. So any, any chance he gets, you know, my husband's a psychotherapist and a drummer and any chance he gets any off moment he has, he's drumming, but he's more of a type B personality. And I'm definitely more like the creative type A personality. I do think that there is a certain, some of us are just creatives and it's kind of like, if you're not doing something, it just feels like, um, you know, yeah. The oh my goodness, I, like I, I only have so well, but also like, I don't know about you, but it's kind of like, you know, there was a, a poem many, many years ago by Andrew Marvell called to his coy mistress. And there's this line that says, but at my back, I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. And oh. to me, that's like, I'm always aware, like I only have so much time here. I want to get as much done as I can. I want to yeah. do as many things as I can. Yeah. I- and I did not believe that as much because I was like, hey, look, I'm I'm young and money's not the way I want it to be. I'm going to save up someday, someday, someday. And it took an entire pandemic to be like, someday could be yesterday, bro. You got to do something yeah. <laughs> along yeah. those lines. Well, and it sounds like, I mean, even from where you were talking about, you have like these windows of time in the morning and you've got these windows of time in the after, you know, late afternoon when you're really like, you're just like in your, you're on fire. You're just in your optimal place. But it really sounds like you are living a life with balance, like that you have found you have found a rhythm that works for you. And it doesn't sound like you're being you're like overdoing it. Yeah, it's one of the situations where like you can move those goalposts and say, oh, man, I wish I had this one more thing. I wish I was that more famous. I wish I had made more money. But uh, someone asked me this today because I tweeted somewhat cryptically. But what's next for Beat? So here, here's, here's a bit of a context. So mm-hmm. I WrestleMania, which is the biggest wrestling event of all year, was in L.A. And I went and I had a podcast on a very popular network on Spotify, but it got canceled. But I still went and I was I was the guy that did used to have a show. <laughs> and then last weekend was the esports tournament there in San Diego. I drove out. I'm well known, but I wasn't working the event. And it's like, hey, didn't you the guy to do that thing? So I woke up today being like, oh, man, I'm, I'm so close to stuff. When's the next level for me? So I go, oh, what's next for Oflo Beto? And a friend hit me up, uh, Mark Cheats, who actually runs the Black Baseball Mixtape. He goes, you do a lot. What do you want? He goes, what do you want to do right now? If you had a chance. What would you do it? I said, what I'm doing is great to be able to do so many different avenues and to be myself or use my video game gamer tag or whatever is what I want. But I just want more. But this time a year ago, I wanted what I have now. I literally got what I asked for, what I manifested for. But yet, because we're human beings, it's always like, well, I'd go for some more. And that thing becomes a, a really bad, unhealthy thing. So I always tell people, write down what you want and then refer to it. Because nine times out of 10, you'll get exactly what you're asking for. Are you going to be happy when you get that? Well, but there's also, I think one of the things that actually comes up is that, I mean, the nature of being human is change and the nature and and that everything evolves. I think the biggest challenge, one of the big challenges that we have is that we hold on to the old stuff instead of letting go of it in order to create room for the new stuff. 
And it's so it's sort of like if you think about it as adapting and shifting, which means some of the old stuff is going to drop away and then you're going to bring in the new things. But where I think we get ourselves really kind of bogged down is when we keep trying to do all the other the old things and bring in all the new stuff simultaneously. Yeah, you gotta prune it like a plant. <laughs> yes, prune it like a plant, weed it like a garden, you know, sometimes transplant things because they no longer, be- they've gotten too big for the spot that they're in and they need to go to a new location. So um, we are actually coming to the point where we talked about like towards the top of the hour. But before I I ask you, I've got, I actually have an extra question for you because you sort of mentioned this. So you said a year ago, you kind of had a sense of what it was you wanted to manifest and create and you're living it now. So what do you want to manifest and create? By the time this airs, it will probably already be in reality, but let's speak it into reality. What, what do you want? What do you, what, what do you desire? Not want, because want ironically as a word literally means you don't have it. You want for something. Sure. So what do you desire? I, I think for me on the on the journalistic side, whether it's through baseball or, or professional wrestling, which is I know is kind of like two random sports together. I really want a brand new platform and to be able to do that and thrive with that, uh, whether uh, mentally, creatively and financially to go back to the podcasting space for that specifically as well. I feel like that's a hole in my offerings um, on the video game side casting video games and what that means is i do commentary over other people playing video games much like a real sport like what john madden used to do or or tony romo used to do i've done that virtually from my studio here but i haven't been able to see it translate into what's called a LAN or like an in-person tournament of a certain like stature like you can do lands at your friend's house but i mean like a LAN is like when people register and they go to an arena and they watch and play i would love to be able to do that there try my casting there also for creativity and 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 lucrative fulfillment as well so those are the two big ones and the third big one is go back on the road with comedy Uh, i wrote some new material gotta get back into the habit of practicing and doing that i would love to go out on the road and and work that as well just basically be myself in different facets of entertainment in different facets yeah yeah so i'm hearing aside from having a sports drink to be able to (laughs) broaden and have a platform for a sports podcast that in that in some ways sort of is a hybrid of baseball and wrestling to be able to be in large in a larger venue not just sort of somebody's living room but to be able to be at sort of like a convention or um you know an event where you are one of the sports casters for the video for video game sports but competition yeah and then finally to be back out on the road and doing comedy and bringing it out into the world so here's to all of these things manifesting and by the time the show airs, maybe, um, you know, when people go and check out your your information, they're like, oh, my God, he is doing these things that Jen and Flobo talked about. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. So we are <laughs> we are at that. We are sort of getting to that top of the hour. So I always like to ask two questions. The first one is, is there anything that you would kick yourself if you did not say or maybe you won't kick yourself, but that you would be like bummed that you did not have a chance to say? during this call i think i said it specifically about the 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 path and and understanding that paths are not linear i think that's the one thing i've learned 
as an adult that I should have told myself, my younger self also is that it's not a straight line. And I do think that this is all part of it. The fact that I have three options for my career and a manifestation question is proof positive of that. So your destinations don't have to change, but the way you get there can and should. Absolutely. So you guys, paths are not linear and I could not agree more. I, I just, I could not agree more. And I look at like, especially my own sort of wild checkered past in my life where it was like all these different pieces that I was being guided to do. And then it's like, it took years for everything to come together. So Flobo, I always love to ask a question about going back to a point in time where there was a you that really needed a message. And I'm sort of imagining maybe like younger, crying, like before (laughs) he found his confidence, Flobo, If you could go back, like I always think of podcasts as not only do they extend way into the future as evergreen content, I believe that they have sort of this magical ability to kind of like send their tendrils of wisdom back back in time. And that sort of like the thread of or the, the ribbon of time is sort of folds over in a podcast and that we have that ability to send a message back to young Flobo. So if you could tell him what he needed to hear. Like if you could just give him, like, what would you send? What would you say to him? So that. Yeah. He, first he of all, he needed. shave your head now, bro. Don't try to comb it over in your twenties. That's, that's no, I'm kidding. It's in all seriousness. Uh, I, I would say that it does get better. It does get better. You won't be able to be a power ranger. Uh, so get over that now. Uh, but everything else you want to do in entertainment, you can do it. And it may take years for the family to be on board. Uh, but now I'm, I'm, they're on board and they're willing to support you, whatever you need. But no, but seriously, shave your head early. Don't wait till you're 25. Don't do that. <laughs> then you would have been so like, I'm sure like if you were like 16 or 17 and you were shaving your head, you would have Oof. been like too cool for school. Oh man, I had the comb over thing. I had the Bozo the Clown thing going. I should have just quit uh, while I was behind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just, I, I just, I, I, the p- picture you paint of this young, of him, I just love him. I think I, he was, he just sounds like such a dear, dear, sweet kid. Like, I just want to give him a big hug. So we are at, we have this, thank you, Flobo. This conversation has just been so real. It has been so candid. It has been so rich. And I think it's been a real special treat because it's definitely been a fresh perspective for my audience. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your generosity of time and your also your generosity of, of soul. Like you've really given us you. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, how do people find you? How do people like, I mean, podcast, uh, do you still have books on Amazon that they can yeah. read? Like, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of that stuff floating around, but the two main websites is my personal one, flobito.com. That's F-L-O-B-I-T-O.com. And then newamsterdam.com. That's K-N-E-W, newamsterdam.com. The book I referenced is called Graduation Day. A lot of times uh, I realize uh, my college age friends or my friends with college age kids now Uh, don't get the right advice they can apply to their life as an adult. I tell you all of my mistakes as an adult in their book, Graduation Day. So if you want to know more about the weight loss journey, if you want to know about the failure of New Amsterdam, the notebook brand, or the fact or the time I went to Italy to save my DJ business, Graduation Day is available now on Amazon. Awesome, awesome, awesome. 
So flobito.com and new K-N-E-W Amsterdam Amsterdam.com. And also those will all be in the flow in, in the flow notes. <laughs> I love it. Trademarked. Important <laughs> term for you. <laughs> You're gonna have the flow notes. <laughs> okay. Flobo, thank you so, so much. This has just been delicious. I appreciate you. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.